From my experience, whether it's your data or not, leaders love that. They eat it up. Get a competitor in there? Oh my gosh, they're done. You have all the support you need in the world. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for being here to, for the premiere episode of Ideas with Michael Bach. I'm your host, Michael Bach. My pronouns are he, him, and I am really excited to have you join us today for this inaugural premiere episode of this show. This is a new series that I launched uh, this year to engage in a discussion about some of the most pressing issues in inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility, or IDEA. A small minority of social conservatives have really taken over the conversation. And because they believe, my opinion, that they, that treating people with dignity and respect is somehow a leftist ideology. And they seem to believe that work in IDEA is part of some culture war. And obviously, they're wrong. Problem is that small minority have managed to get themselves into positions of power and they become very vocal and making people question the value of the work that we do in idea. And that's why I created this series to elevate the conversation and to engage with idea practitioners and champions who can share their experiences, both good and bad, and help people learn from them. And I am thrilled that so many of you have decided to join us today. It's very exciting. Now, uh, events like this take a lot to put on. And I want to say a special thank you to my team, as well to our serious sponsor, Dentons. Uh, Dentons is the world's largest law firm by lawyers and has taken their work in inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility very seriously. I have had the pleasure of working with Dentons for nearly 20 years. And I'm honored to have them as a sponsor for this series. So thank you. On today's episode, we'll be exploring the theme of data and measurement. How do you measure the impact of idea efforts? What data should you be collecting to understand if and when you've achieved your objectives? And how do you measure in a way that avoids being perceived as performative or just ticking the box? Sir Tree Shipley is co-owner and chief consulting officer of Mattingly Solutions, a woman-owned diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting firm. Sir Therese is passionate about helping organizations use metrics to create data-driven DEI strategies that drive meaningful change. She serves clients through DEI executive advising, DEI measurement consulting, and building and delivering inclusive behavioral change solutions. Sertrice also makes time to give back to the community through various board positions and volunteer roles. She's presented at events such as Vibrant Pittsburgh's Regional Economic Inclusion Summit, Society for Industrial Organizational Psychology, and SHRM. Sertrice has her MS in organization, Industrial Organizational Psychology, and she is located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Sertrice, welcome to the show. Hello. I know. I owe psychology. It's a mouthful. <laughs> A mouthful, and I'm sure everyone is wondering how quickly they can get an appointment so you can organize their psychology. That didn't make any sense. Um, I am so, uh, so pleased that you could be here for the first episode. 
because of course we only get to spend time together at Sherm conferences. So I'm excited to get to spend time with you. That's it. So Therese is the co-author of Inclusolytics, how diversity, equity, and inclusion leaders use data to drive their work. And I have read this book and it is filled with really great insights. If you're looking for a book that focuses on data and measurement in idea, look no further. And you can find uh, more about the book at inclusolytics.com. So let's start with learning a little bit about me. You tell me about the wonderful and talented Sir Tree Shipley, how you got into this field. What's, what's your journey about? Yeah, yeah. And first, I'll just say real quick, it is fun making up words and you can do that when you write a book, but then functionally just watching people stumble with it is like fun, but also kind of sad. So thank you for dropping the link. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so so my journey, well, we talked about industrial organizational psychology, right? So I was one of those kids, not to toot my own horn, but growing up, I did well in school didn't matter the subject. But the one class I took in high school that I really loved and wanted to keep learning about was psychology. However, I also knew maybe no one needed me as a psychologist. So when I went to college and I'm studying psychology, trying to figure out the next step because you can't do anything with a BA in psychology, that's when I stumbled across this concept of industrial organizational psychology, which is the science of human behavior in the workplace. And it really interested me because, like I said, I love people, I love psychology, and as adults, we spend most of our lives in the workplace, yet how many people are dreading going into the office on Monday morning? Going into IO Psych, I felt like I could focus on that. How can I improve that experience for people so they aren't having that feeling all the time in the place where they're spending most of their time, and it also helps the business, so that's great. So I went to grad school, got my I, uh, my master's in IO, and after that was at a company where we focused largely on like engagement surveys, 360s, we're building reports, dashboards. And after being there for several years, then 2020 came, right? Everything explodes in the DEI space. I'm our internal expert helping lay down foundations. I'm our external expert helping our clients. And that's when eventually I realized, oh, wow. That's what really I was passionate about, right? When I, if we think back to my original statement, I want to improve the experience for employees. It's DEI, it's equity and inclusion. And so that's what helped me realize I was ready to make a pivot. And so I am going to shout out Victoria real quick. I met her virtually in 2020. And then 2021, we were doing something similar to this. And at the end, you know, I was talking to her about how, oh, I think I want to pivot and focus more on DEI. And she's like, well, have you ever owned a company or have you ever thought about owning a company? I was like, no, I have not. She goes, have you ever thought about writing a book? No, I have not. Um, within a couple of months, I was on board and doing both. So I've been doing this for the past three years and it's been great getting to use those IO skills and help organizations take a data-driven, intentional approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and figuring out how to run a business has been a task, but it's been fun and I've learned a lot. What I heard in my simple little brain is IO is about the psychology of the workplace, how people function together, which makes mm -hmm. so much sense then that you ended up in the idea field because that's all about what we're talking about, right? It's just how we engage with one another in the workplace. So you talk about this in the book, and I'm just going to do my my Barker's Beauties here. You talk about the types of measurement that are used in idea work. Yeah, yeah. So 
when we talk about DEI and data, people, they get nervous usually, right? They're either like, I don't know what that means, what it looks like, it, it's how do we start? And the answer is it depends, right? You have to think about what do you want to know? What are the questions? So like I said, um, I'm a psychologist, we're STEM field, we're, sci- we're scientists, right? So what's your research question? And that's going to help you figure out what type of data you want to look at. And when we say the words like diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, accessibility, sometimes we act like they're all the same thing, but they're different. So, for example, if I'm measuring diversity, it's as simple as looking around and saying, okay, how many people from each group do we have, right? So you can quantitatively look at what's the dem- what are your demographics. But if we're looking at equity, you have to take those demographics and combine it with your policies, practices, procedures to see how, how are those different groups experiencing your environment? So doing different equity analyses, and that can be quantitative and qualitative. And by that, it's like you can look at hard numbers, but you can also have conversations with people. Inclusion, that's a behavior. So you want to ask other people, right, how is this person treating you? And then you can measure that data in that way. Belonging, though, right? That's just how do people feel? Do you feel valued, respected, seen, and heard? So that is where we get a little touchy-feely. We can quantify it, but it is still subjective, and that's okay. Because organizations are made up of people and people have feelings and those feelings matter. Um, So that's real high level kind of how that can look. All this to say, it's not one picture. It really depends. Um, But definitely making sure you get some numbers involved so you can have some objectivity, but also some qualitative. So you can really hear the voice of the people you're trying to impact. I think those are so critically important. The difference between data types and most people, most organizations that I've ever talked to and discussed these things with are, are stuck on that demographic piece. They're stuck on the representation piece, the quantitative piece, which is important. You need to know who your people are, how they identify. So you know if you are representative of your community and of uh, your customer, but that's a bit limited because you don't know how they feel. You can have you know, an office full of black people, but if they're miserable, then they won't be as engaged, they won't be as productive and so on. So it's really important to have those different pieces of of data. So beyond what I just said, what is the most important thing people need to pay attention to as it relates to data and measurement in the idea space? Yeah, making sure you're connecting your data to a purpose. What is your why? What's your why behind collecting data? What's your why behind focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Once you figure out your purpose, it helps you know what data to look at. But then another piece I would add on something that's important but can be overlooked, and you made me think of it, is looking at your data intersectionally. And this, I mean, in two ways. One, we're in the idea space, right? So all of you, when I said that, probably thought, oh yeah, like, so Black women or Black men and looking across demographics. And that's true. That is intersectionality. That's where the um, term was coined as far as idea. However, it's also an analytical term. And when we talk about it in the data space, it's saying across sources of data. So don't just look at your counts for diversity, Compare that to, okay, what are what data are we getting from our exit interviews? What are we seeing in our performance evaluations? And when you start looking at data from different sources and pulling it all together, that's where you get a full picture. Because as you started saying, Michael, if we just look and say, okay, yeah, great, we have diversity here, that's wonderful, we checked our numbers, that is not the whole picture. Where does that diversity lie? Is it 
through your whole organization? Is it just at one level, right? And when we start digging in, how do these people feel? They're here, but are they voluntarily leaving when we compare it to our turnover data and you just have this burn and churn model going, right? So the diversity is there, but you can't sustain it. But again, tying back to my original comment to know where to start, starts with your why. What matters to us? What are our values? If you can't understand the infamous business case, Mm-hmm. And that may seem simplistic, but the reality is that that a lot of organizations still can't articulate that specific thing to say, this is why it matters. Well, um, and with that, with the business case, sometimes we're afraid of it, right? Because I work in DEI, I, there are times when I feel icky because I'm monetizing it, right? And I have to get paid to do this work so I can pay my employees, so I can pay myself, but it can feel icky, right? And so the same thing happens with people when we say, well, remember the business case, right? Because they're all, well, it's the moral case. This is important because it's people and we should just care. Who cares about the business case? But we can't ignore it for two reasons. One, not everybody's going to believe in the moral. Sorry. So you you have to appeal to them in some way to make them value this. But two, we also shouldn't ignore the fact that we are a business. We have values and priorities, right? So everything that we do should come back to our core purpose as a business. And so when you do that, it helps you know where to prioritize, where to focus, what to lean into. Because if you just start doing things here and there, you get disconnected, it's disjointed, and it makes things really difficult in bringing all of your actions together outside of just DEI, right? Because we say DEI is ingrained in everything. It's ingrained in your marketing and your selection and your product development. All of that is also tied together by your values. I, I feel similarly in that there are people who really do get to feel like this work should be exclusively in the social space. We should only do this because of the moral imperative. And I get that. And I come from a social justice background. You know, I grew up fighting the good fight and protesting and all those things. But the reality is that most I'm going to use for-profit language, but most CEOs, most C-suite executives are not necessarily motivated Mm -hmm. by that language. They're not, you know, at the end of the day, if I'm the CEO of, I don't know, an oil and gas company, they are um, not getting paid because of their commitment to the moral imperative. They're getting rewarded because of their profits and their their return to the shareholders. So mm-hmm. I, I think one of the reasons why, frankly, I've been successful in this space is because I've looked at this as a business problem. Mm-hmm. And it's about how do we function better as businesses? And ultimately, we're all in the people business until, of course, our robot overlords tire of us and shred (laughs) us into the... No one seems to have seen Terminator, so I just keep reminding people. But we are in the people business, all of us. No matter what you do, you need people. And those people have to feel engaged. They have to feel connected. They have to feel like they matter in your organization. You know, I don't have a problem with connecting it back to the business case because that inevitably is what ensures the sort of long-term sustainability of the work that we do. One way I like to summarize what you were just saying is that it's both, right? It's not either or. We like to put those things against each other. I think it's both. And really, the moral case 
is the business case, right? Because what you just said, businesses are made up of people. So we have to prioritize our people. So it's still, they're, they're all related. And we have this like black and white, it's this or that. That's not the case. It's both of them. What would you say are some of the biggest barriers to measurement right now? That is a good question. Um, I always like to think of, and it's really interesting, and I could answer that in a few ways, but one that immediately comes to mind is having support, making sure that your leaders are on board for two reasons. One, they hold the purse strings. And so if you need money, if you need support, they have to okay it. But two, they also have to champion it right? They have to role model what you want. They have to tell people, yes, this actually matters and is important to us or else no one's going to take it seriously. So making sure you have that foundational support is a barrier. Obviously, we're here to talk about data, my love for data. That is a barrier. Getting permission to have to collect data, getting access to the data, right? Because sometimes you have the data, but only certain people get to look at it because it's a secret. We can't let everyone know what our data is whole other issue. And then, you know, our societal landscape can be a barrier. I I loved your intro to why you're doing the series, right? Because it's so true. We have taken something that should just be fact, right? It is how do we improve our businesses and our people are business. So we should want to take care of them into somehow politicizing this conversation. Oh, and just not not knowing what to do with that data. Even if you get permission, you're like, how do I start? What do I collect? What do I do with it when I have it? Uh, That's another one too. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The conversation has gotten politicized. I was reading something the other day, some tweet, God help me. And someone actually suggested that the Alaska Airlines plane door blowing out was because of DEI, because Alaska had somehow prioritized DEI over safety. And 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 at first it was laughable, right? Like you hear that argument and you go, what? That's not a thing. How How did you come up with that? But that's the problem is we've got people making some ludicrous claims. It is really hurting the work we're doing. So let's talk about leaders for a second, because you mentioned leaders in there. How can you get leaders to kind of buy into the need for measurement and, and deal with that pushback? Well, one, that's where that data comes in, right? Those two things come really hand in hand. And I know it can be hard chicken or the egg scenario, like, oh, if you need leader buy-in to get your data, how do you use the data to get their buy-in? So there's some external data sources you can look at, research best practices, because from my experience, whether it's your data or not, leaders love that. They eat it up. As soon as you say, here's this report, here's this study, look at this data point, and you have to boil it down. Don't give them the whole report. Give them a few bullets. But they love it. They're like, oh, this is great. So-and-so is doing this. Get a competitor in there. Oh my gosh, they're done. You have all the support you need in the world, right? So really lean into that data. But you also need to have education. Now, I will say, When I'm helping organizations take this data-driven approach to DEI, we usually follow this model of collect your data, figure out, you know, what's your starting point where you need to focus, strategize, make a plan, then you action that plan. So that might be your workshops, ERGs, whatever, uh, and then measure some more, right, to see are we having the impact, do we need to pivot? So training is the third step in all of this process. You don't start there for the most part, for your large thing. That's the other piece of leader support. You need to have data to tie them in, but they may need education. They may need some simple guidance around what do these words even mean? 
what is this space even about? So it's not a robust training program. Please do not try and get them into an allyship program or unconscious bias at this point. Just simple foundations. These are what these words mean and what it means to us here and how it is a part of our already existing values. So that education mixed with some data, that'll usually get you the buy-in you need. And, and certainly I can speak from experience. I used to lead diversity for a large uh, accounting firm. And if I went in with an argument that didn't include data, mm-hmm. I wasn't getting anywhere. My measurement piece was so critical there. And because I, I you know, have a lot of experience in data and, and saw the power of it, we got a lot done as a consequence of that. Now, the second thing you you talked about was kind of having the data, but not starting the analysis. How would you advise a client that already has some of this data to really to get into that analysis phase? So if you have the data um, or you have data in some way, or maybe you even just have permissions to collect the data, what, what comes next, right? Well, one, like I said, make sure you know your why. What, what's the question we're trying to answer? Because that'll help you immediately start to see what data makes the most sense. But with that data, typically what you start with having is your HRIS. So you have that demographic data. And my first thing there is you can easily break that down. Start looking at it in different levels. See what you have going on, running some numbers, and compare that data to the industry. There are a lot of places you can look at for that. In your industry, there may be organizations who have some solid industry-specific numbers. At a minimum, in the U.S., we have like our census data that you can pull up and see, you know, who's eligible to work in the U.S. at the broad scale. So there's a few different ways because when we talk about diversity in your organization and representation, you want it to be representative of the community you serve, of the community you have access to. So that's where you can start a lot of times as a company. And then you can also, with your data, use, like I said, kind of use it to look across, compare it to your employee survey data, because that's another point where a lot of organizations can start. Most of them have at least one type of survey they're already looking at, break it down by demographic. So those are usually two early ways to start with data. Yeah. Oh, one more. Sprinkle on top. I forgot, because those are both more quantitative. So I do want to sprinkle in that you can also start having listening sessions to start getting some qualitative data as well. There's a whole lot more I can say about qualitative data. And I honestly really recommend you getting a third party to do your more in-depth qualitative data analyses and even uh, data collection. But never hurts to have a good town hall, right? And just hear from people in the moment. Can we talk about that for a second? Because I think this is an important one, is the difference between internal collecting versus external collecting. And we have to acknowledge, of course, that you know, you're know you a consultant in this space. So this is going to come across as a bit self-serving. But what would you advise a client uh, around who collects the data, particularly things like focus groups, town halls, things where people can be really vulnerable? How do you advise on that? So. To pull out this, the potential self-serving here and just have you think as a person for a minute, if your boss came to you right now and asked you really in-depth questions, right? Because some of these surveys get really long. Let's say they sit down and just asked you 50, 100 questions. Would you answer, answer them truthfully? All of them. Some of them, maybe. Maybe not all of them, right? 
that's the mindset your employees are in. When they know that it's internal, even if you tell them, oh, only this one area will have access, they start getting nervous. They're like, well, who truly has access? Can they be pressured into sharing the data? Like, who's going to get this? And so that trust makes it hard to collect data internally, but even more so with qualitative data, right? Because again, if you're in a focus group and you're asking questions, you can sit there and say, okay, this is anonymous, but you still see everyone. So they know who's there. They know the facilitator, if it's an HR person leading the conversation, right? And so that's why having that external party, it just helps build that trust barrier. It can help with quantitative data because, again, it's like, oh, this company has the raw data and they're only going to share aggregated reports. So they're going to combine my responses. I'm not identifiable. Helps build some trust there. But more importantly, like I said, just the visible aspect of collecting qualitative data, having someone outside of the organization. And even better, if they can match the identity, let's say you're trying to, you know, chat with your Black women, if a Black woman could be the facilitator also adds another level of comfort, comfortability and thinking she understands where I'm coming from. Yeah, I come at it from a very similar perspective. Former job days, we collected all the demographic information internally and I had access to all the data. So I could see line by line how people responded to each individual question. And that was just demographics, but it was way more information that I felt comfortable having. And I was, you know, swore on pain of death that I wouldn't reveal the information. Of course, I respected that. But it it really did put me in that awkward position where someone could have asked a question Mm -hmm. and I would have had to say, I can't answer that. So I'm a big proponent of going external, to your point, to create that space where people feel comfortable sharing and they don't feel that their boss is going to find out that HR is looking at them funny. It's such personal information that I think it's really important that it is collected externally. So what about the third group, organizations that uh, haven't started? How would you advise them on on where they begin their journey of collecting data? Well, read Inclusalytics. No, I'm kidding. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> No, but seriously, my point with that is start by gaining an understanding of what this is, because I can guarantee you every organization has some DEI related data. They just may not be looking at it that way. Even if it's an Excel file with all your employee information, you have demographic data. You just haven't started breaking it down. And so telling them to determine their why. If we want to start collecting DEI data, What's our focus? Most people, when they say they want to do that, they're thinking of diversity and they want to know their breakdown. Okay, if that's the case, then we need to look at this. But it is becoming more popular, especially given the climate, for people to say, well, actually, I want to focus on inclusion or I want my people to feel like they belong. Okay, well, if you want people to feel like they belong, we need to ask them, do they feel like they belong? Because maybe you're all right. Maybe you don't have to do anything else, but you got to at least ask to figure out where they are, right? That would be my suggestion to you. If you currently are not looking at DEI data, sit down and determine why are you considering doing it? So one of the arguments that I have certainly heard is legal concerns from clients who say, well, if we collect that data, we're opening up our ourselves to a lawsuit. How do you address, particularly in the US, how do you address that fear that collecting demographic information, inclusion survey data may lead to getting sued? 
So I have two thoughts there. One is that it's not a secret, you know, especially when we're thinking about diversity data, your employees can look around and they can see your makeup. So, so you collecting that data and saying like, hey, this is actually our numbers, they won't be surprised. Um, in fact, I've actually seen the opposite happen a number of times where people can only see their small segment. And so they're making assumptions about the whole organization, but truly you're more diverse than that. So being transparent can help you with perceptions, right? And then Similarly there, with things not being a surprise, is your culture, right? If we were to think of inclusive behaviors or feelings of belonging, again, not a secret. People can typically look around and see how people are treating each other and start making some assumptions. So collecting that data just helps get a clear picture um, of what's going on. Now, the other piece is, is where I say I'm not a lawyer, so it's not official legal advice, and it is definitely U.S.-centric. But in the U.S., for better or worse, the law is really on an organization side. And the if you look at things around disparate impact and things like that, what they're looking for is that you are putting in, quote, a genuine effort on addressing the issues. And then it's like, OK, well, you're trying. <laughs> and so then it's OK. Um, and so that's the key, right, is if you're afraid of the legal piece, just make sure that you collect the data you make a plan based on the data and you follow through with actioning that plan. Because as long as you do that, they don't really have much of a, gra a leg to stand on for suing you. And if they were to sue you, you'd have to do that process anyway. So instead of being retroactive, let's be proactive, let's have it ready to go. And I'll say anecdotally, I speak to a lot of people who are clients, who are internal. I speak to a lot of other DEI consultants. I don't see a lot of organizations taking these actions and then having their internal people come up and start suing them out the wazoo, right? Most of the time they're like, oh, this is great. I feel, I finally feel heard. Thank you for doing this. I understand it'll take some time. But as long as, again, you're showing that true, genuine effort, you're not just being performative, but you truly are collecting this data, actioning it, the lawsuits don't come. The lawsuits come when they don't see that. They come when you aren't collecting data, when you aren't making these strategies, when you aren't taking the actions. So the very data you're afraid of is what you'll need to do in the end to, to get you out of it. Yeah. And I would say that, keeping in mind that there that I'm also not a lawyer, that there are different laws on, on either side of the border. There are ways to collect the data that it's respectful, it mm -hmm. is inclusive, it does not leave people uh, feeling excluded. And the reality is, is that if someone's feeling excluded, whether you collect the data or not, there is the potential for a lawsuit. Oh, 100%. Right? We, we live in a litigious society. So it can happen if law firms and universities can be sued for allowing free speech or not allowing free speech, then anything is possible. Not collecting the data or collecting the data really, I don't think, makes a difference. I, th I think that's one of those kind of mythical arguments that people come up, like the Alaska Airlines comment, like, this is not stuff that's actually happening. You're just maybe making up excuses to get out, out of asking the questions. Last question, Patrice, uh, where can people connect with you? Oh, yes. You can connect with me best on LinkedIn. I'm always on there. I tell people all the time it comes to my phone. And so it's like texting me. Um, and then if you want to see also pictures of my dog, then follow me on Instagram and you'll get a little bit of DEI and some friends to treat like. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we will paste links 
to both your Instagram and LinkedIn in the chat and people can connect with you there. Uh, thank you for joining me for today, engaging in this conversation. I could not have th thought of a better guest for my first episode of my new web series and podcast to have on to talk about data and measurement than the one and only Sir Tree Shipley. So thank you for joining me today. Thanks for inviting me to be your first guest. I realized that and I was like, oh, I'm so special. So thanks. You are special. And <laughs> do pick up Sir Teresa's book, uh, Inclusalytics, how diversity, equity, and inclusion leaders use data to drive their work at inclusalytics.com. Thank you to all of you who tuned in. I hope you found the discussion informative and valuable. If you did, please feel free to post it on your social media using the hashtag ideas with Michael Bach. And if you didn't enjoy it, there is no need to tell anyone. Just, just keep that to yourself. Uh, speaking of social media, if you haven't already done so, please do connect with me on social media. I am at the Michael Bach on all the social media platforms. And the next episode of Ideas with Michael Bach will air on Wednesday, February the 14th, Valentine's Day at 1 p.m. Eastern or GMT plus five, where my guest will be Pharrell Hall, Chief Inclusion and People Officer for Nine Story Media Group. And we'll be talking about the importance of inclusive communications as part of the inclusive communications theme. I know that wasn't terribly urgent, but anyway, I hope you'll join for that conversation. And if you haven't already registered, you can do so at michaelbach.com slash ideas or again on social media. Thanks again for joining us today. And I look forward to talking with you again. <laughs>